Well, this morning we begin the first of a four-week series on money, riches, and greed called Kingdom Economics. Kingdom Economics. You can tell by the title that, oh, and then in the, the subtitle is Investing in Eternity. You can tell by the title that money and riches and wealth and bills and, yes, even investing, these are kingdom issues. These are spiritual issues, issues of the heart, meaning how you think about money and possessions and riches and greed reveals what it is you love and live for the most. And all the series we're going to do, we're going to do four sermons on four great money texts, four great biblical passages about money and riches and greed and investing in eternity. And all I want, the goal of this series is that we would unleash, that the word of God would unleash the greatest movement of giving and investing in eternity that this church has ever seen. Just preach the word of God and let the chips fall where they may. What's ironic to me about money is that all it is is just little scraps of paper and tiny pieces of metal, right? That's it. There's nothing, nothing special, nothing magical about the money itself. It's just a symbol of power, right? In fact, the money itself is actually worth very little. And yet, those little scraps of paper and tiny pieces of metal hold a curious, terrifying power of the human soul, don't they? Maybe even over your soul. You see, money has this reverse kryptonite effect on the heart where it does not weaken but strengthen the desires for more and more and more, and the more you feed those desires for money, the more hungry they become. Like a black hole in space, the love of money consumes its victims, sucks them in, and crushes them into non-existence. And you know, just as well as I do, that mankind throughout history have done the unspeakable to gain more gold and to make more money, which is exactly why armored cars and giant steel vaults exist you realize that men have done the unspeakable. That the appetite of mankind for self-destruction is no more evident than when it comes to greed and riches and wealth and money. And we need to be clear here. It's not that money is inherently evil. It's not. But it is inherently lethal if used incorrectly. And how it's used incorrectly is when you begin to love it more than God himself. If there's a wallet in your pocket, you're sitting on a time bomb, and your heart is the detonator. <laughs> How's that for an introduction? <laughs> and I know that's weighty. I know there, there's gravity to that. But you see, I take my cues from Solomon this morning, who in the passage we're about to see gives us warnings, sober, weighty, grave warnings about wealth and riches, and greed, and possessions, and money, and materialism. Because you see, where we're at this morning is the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, it makes total sense that Solomon would talk about money, security, riches, and greed. And the reason for that is because what Ecclesiastes is, is a mystery novel about the meaning of life. About what does and does not satisfy the longings of the soul. I mean, you just know that any book about the meaning of life has to talk about money. 
It just has to talk about riches. It just has to talk about possessions. It has to talk about greed. It just has to. And the reason why is because money feels like the real thing. Money seems like it's the answer. Money is this physical, tangible, necessary part of life that has all the appearances of giving authentic joy and true happiness and solving all of your problems. I mean, it really seems like it provides ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction. And yet, that is the very lie from which Solomon has come this morning to deliver you. Because hell is filled with people who believed that very thing. Because the thing about money is that it tries to do only, it tries to convince you that it can do only what God himself can do, namely satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And again, it's true, it's true that money can bail us out of our jams. It can solve our problems. It can comfort us when we're depressed. It can support us when we're sick. It can buy us friends when we are lonely. It can fill our lives with excitement when life feels empty, or at least that is the very illusion of which money tries to persuade you. But be warned this morning, not all that glitters is gold. What you're about to see from Solomon is a brutally honest, bare-knuckled expose on the potential dangers of money and greed. See, Solomon goes behind the scenes and he uncovers the gritty truth that pursuing riches and money and wealth for your highest happiness, that if that's what you're pursuing for your highest happiness, you will be bitterly disappointed in the end. And I know, I know we say we, we know that, but do we live that? Because you see, Solomon, one of the wealthiest people ever to live on the face of the planet, grossing probably $1,033,000,000 a year in his annual income, he is more than qualified to lecture us on the monster of money and the dangers of greed. I mean, if there was anyone in history who knew that money could not buy your highest happiness, it was King Solomon himself, and he would know because he tried it. He attempted to do that. He plunged himself in the endless abyss of the money pit, looking to scratch the itch of his heart's deepest satisfaction, and he darn near lost his very soul. And yet, by the grace of God alone, he lived to tell the tale, which he does here in Ecclesiastes. And so we begin our series on kingdom economics, hearing from the wisest, if not the richest man ever in human history, who's going to tell us the honest-to-God truth about the allurements and enticements of greed. So here we go. If you've got notes, here's where we're going. Either way, this is where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text four warnings about wealth. Four Warnings about wealth designed to persuade you that despite what it claims, doesn't actually satisfy the soul. Four warnings about wealth designed to persuade you that despite what it claims, doesn't actually satisfy the soul. And the first warning about wealth and riches and greed is this. Number one, do not be suckered. Money will never satisfy. Do not be suckered this morning. Money will never satisfy satisfy. Now I want you to notice something very peculiar about the context here of chapter 5. You notice that Solomon moves from authentic worship in verses 1 through 7 to talking about riches and wealth and greed in verses 8 through 20. Did you notice that? 
And that seems interesting because it doesn't seem like one thing at all has anything to do with the other. And yet those two things have everything to do with one another. And the reason for that is because there is no greater threat on the planet to authentic worship than greed and the love of money. I mean, there's almost nothing that more quickly entices our soul away from thirsting for God than hungering for wealth. And it starts off so harmless, too, doesn't it? Well-intentioned, even sacrificial. Someone has to take on a job to pay the bills, maybe a second job. Another way of supplemental income, which they should do, but then something happens. Something dark imperceptible to the soul at first, subtly over time, the possibilities of what money can provide begins to creep into their souls and they wind up taking more hours and more shifts at work, which by itself is not a problem, but that becomes a problem when worship starts to feel impractical. When Sunday mornings with God's people begin to feel like an option, a sacrifice that you have to make for the greater good of gaining an income. And the problem is not so much that their church attendance begins to wane, but that their affections for God begin to weaken. And I know this because I've seen it. And you have too. And if they weren't married, maybe they do get married, maybe even to an unbeliever. They are cut off from the church 10 years later. They're not even sure what they believe about God anymore and their soul hangs in the balance. That's what Solomon's talking about right there. And he's got bad news for anyone who looks to money and wealth to buy your highest happiness. Look at the first warning he gives in verse 10. Look what he says. The one who loves money, he says, will not be satisfied with money. And the one who loves abundance will not be satisfied by its income. Even this is futility or vanity, your Bible might say. Sorry about that, Solomon says. If you were secretly hoping that money and wealth and riches were going to satisfy your deepest longings, you will be disappointed. Solomon lovingly rains on your parade this morning. It will never do that. Not now, not ever. And with all the power and potential that wealth wields in this life, one thing it can never do is fulfill your deepest cravings for satisfaction. It can't do that. It won't do that. Why? Because although money is an exciting and tantalizing lover, to be sure, it's a terrible liar. I mean, love it all you want. It's never going to love you back. It's going to tease you and tempt you and entice you, to be sure but it'll never commit to you. And the more you love it, the worse it will treat you, and the more it will abuse you and hurt you and disappoint you in the end. And the reason for that is because although money is not inherently evil, it was never intended by God to be the meaning of life. I mean, this is the classic example of square peg, round hole. Money will never satisfy, no matter how much money you actually have. That's why he says in verse 10, the one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Why? Because that's not what it was made for. That's not what it was intended to do. And he adds to the disappointment. Look at verse 10 again. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, and the one who loves abundance will not be satisfied with its income. Even this 
is futility. That, that, word, that word income there literally means produce or yield or gain. And I think the point is not only will money itself not satisfy, but also the, mon the objects that money can buy will never satisfy either. I think if Solomon here, he would challenge us. I think he'd say, go ahead. Knock yourself out. Buy everything you can from the Nike store. Or Express, or Nordstrom's, or Cabela's, or the Apple store, or Tesla, or Tiffany's, if that's even still in existence, or the Ferrari dealership, or the, or the mail order bride catalog. Order everything you can, and guess what? It will never be enough. It won't feel like gain. It won't even feel like you broke even. Why? Because the love of money has bound up within it the law of diminishing returns. The more you want it, the less it'll satisfy. But the more you have, the more you want, and the more you accumulate to bring you joy, the, the more it shrinks your capa soul's capacity to supply your joy. I mean, this so reminds me of a book I read in college called In the Heart of the Sea. In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick, which is this riveting true story about these men who stranded in the middle of a, uh, the ocean on a rescue boat because this giant whale sunk their ship. Yes, it's, based, it's uh, what Moby Dick is based on. The giant whale sank their ship, and here they are, these dozen men in this rescue boat, no food, no water, no supplies. And the survivors later recounted they, that they had to drink salt water to quench their thirst. And they said that when they did, it almost drove them insane. So insane, in fact, that they would catch giant sea turtles swimming by and they would bite open their throats and drink their blood to quench their thirst. That's what Solomon's talking about. That's what he's after here. That to try to be satisfied by wealth is only trying to satisfy your thirst with seawater. It's never, ever going to work. The more you drink, the more thirsty you become. Why? Look at the end. Look at Solomon's answer at the end of verse 10. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The one who loves abundance will not be satisfied by its income. Even this is futility, he says. Futility or vanity. Solomon's favorite word. 38 times in 12 chapters, he uses this word. And do you know what that word means? It means soap bubbles. Meaning, what is the most delicate and fragile thing you can think of? The most delicate and fragile thing you can think of? Vapor? Steam? Smoke in the wind? Soap bubbles? See, that's what this is. The point is, it cannot last. It will not satisfy. And if you try to find your satisfaction in it, it will only vanish and leave you with nothing. That is futility. And so the question you need to ask yourself this morning is, do you love money? Not do you appropriately enjoy the God-given benefits that money can provide. Because believe it or not, that's actually going to be one of Sol Solomon's applications at the end of the chapter. There's nothing sinister wrong with that. There there's nothing wrong with that, believe it or not. But rather, the question is, is money and all that it can buy more exhilarating to your soul than God himself? 
Because when Solomon talks about loving money, that's exactly what he means. To love money and all that it contains means deep down you love that more than you love God himself. That's the issue. Because you remember the words of the Lord Jesus, don't you, in Matthew 6, 24? He tells us, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Either he will despise the one or he will be devoted to the other. You cannot love both God and money. So the question for you this morning is, which master do you love the most? Which master has your highest allegiance? The question is, how would you even be able to tell? Which one was your master? How would you be able to tell? When you ask yourself a series of questions, a series of questions that help you gauge if you love money or not. For instance, consumer debt. Does consumer debt reveal if you love money or not? Probably. What about spending what you don't really have on things you can't really afford to give the impression that you're something you're not? Does that reveal that you love money? Probably. Being stingy and tight-fisted, especially towards the Great Commission? Definitely. Impulse shopping as a way to escape or deal with stress or anxiety? Appointment? Does that reveal that you love money? Very likely. Unwilling to do anything in church or in ministry unless you're reimbursed or compensated? Does that reveal that you love money? Quite possibly. When your standard of living has to match your income, does that reveal that you love money? That's a distinct possibility. Think about the secret moments in your life. Are you always stressed, gripped by fear and anxiety about money? The secret moments of your life, your thoughts, are you always preoccupied with the next item that you are going to purchase? Do you, how about those secret moments? Do you resent and despise people who have more than you? When no matter how much you have, you secretly feel and believe that it's never enough, or when you are willing to sin or bend the rules to get more money, that right there is exhibit A, hand in the cookie jar evidence that someone has been infected with the virus of greed. The question is this morning, have you been infected by the virus of greed? Do you see any of that in your life? Because the reality is, the good news is, is that the cure for that is simple and profound. Literally, it is foolproof. You see, to not love money, you have to love something more than money. We have to find something that glitters more than gold in order to not love the glitter of gold. And the only thing that fits that description is the transcendent glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The staggering glory of the Lord Jesus and everything he accomplished for sinners like us is what it is that makes the things of this world grow strangely dim. And where you go to enjoy that glory is, of course, the treasure vault of holy scripture. I've said this before. I don't mind saying it again. I want you to be in the word every single day, not because it makes God happy with you, but because it makes you happy in God above all things. And when you are happy in God 
above all things, the pleasure that money pretends to offer loses its deceptive appeal. That's warning number one. The second warning about riches, wealth, and greed, number two, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. People will use you. Don't be surprised. People are going to use you. I find it very interesting that when it comes to money and wealth and riches, that Solomon thinks of things that we would have never even considered. Sort of like the testimony of people who win the lottery. Have you ever heard about people who win the lottery and their testimony years later, all of the unexpected, surprising hassles and dangers and threats to their life because they won all this money? For example, both Solomon and lottery winners say that when you accumulate a lot of money and wealth, that be warned, you will have many friends. Or, at the very least, you will have a lot of people who pretend to be your friends. I being, I believe, probably the richest man in the history of the world, Solomon would know. He knew exactly what this was like. In fact, three times in the book of Proverbs, he says this very thing. That, that if you have wealth, that people are going to weasel their way into your life and pretend to be your friend, not because they like you necessarily, but because they like what you can give them. You are a means to an end. These are in your notes, Proverbs 14, 20. The poor is hated by his neighbor, here it is, but those who love the rich are many. Proverbs 19.4, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Proverbs 19.6, many will seek the favor of a generous man, and and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Do you see? Apparently, Being wealthy isn't all it's cracked up to be. There is unexpected baggage that comes on the table. And Solomon shares shares with us that baggage in verse 11. Look what he says. It's very interesting. He says, when good things increase, those who devour them also increase. And what is the advantage to their owner except to look on with the eyes? I'll explain what that means in the second half of the verse, but did you hear initially what he said? When good things increase, those who devour them also increase. I mean, don't say Solomon didn't warn you. There's a cost to winning the lottery. There's a hidden drawback to success and power. Getting rich and wealthy comes with fine print liabilities that most people never take the time to read, but Solomon did. At least he did eventually. And what he discovered is when good things increase, those who devour them also increase. What's interesting is that that word goods or good things in Hebrew, that can even mean success. That can even mean accomplishments. I think think Solomon is hinting that even just being successful, even being well-known, being good at what you do, Gaining notoriety has a short-term slot machine effect reward to be sure, but it immediately begins to attract the attention of the kind of people whose attention you definitely do not want in your life. He's just being honest. He's just warning us here. If you start making a lot of money and acquiring nice things, just know that those who want to devour your money and get your stuff will also begin to increase. And Solomon literally calls them consumers devours. In other words, 
leeches, freeloaders, sponges, flatterers, scam artists, distant cousins that you didn't know you had, family members who come out of the woodwork. They haven't talked to you in years, but all of a sudden they want to get to know you again. Neighbors, employees, coworkers, and the government is all going to show up wanting their piece of the pie. I mean, you put cookies in the cookie jar, and all the greedy brats are going to want to get their little hands inside the jar, which means, which means, here's the punchline, a higher salary and a bigger income and a more lavish lifestyle is a liability, and it comes with a cost. The sharks are going to smell the blood in the water, and mark my words, they will come fast and hungry for the feast. It's exactly what happened to Abraham Lee Shakespeare. What an awesome name. Abraham Lee Shakespeare... 2006, he won the Florida lottery. Less than a year after he did, there was a bullet in his head, and he was buried under a concrete slab in the backyard. You know who did it? An acquaintance, a friend of a friend who persuaded him to let her be his financial advisor, and when she got control of all of his assets and money, she wiped him off the face of the planet. That's what Solomon is talking about. And look at his obvious question at the end of verse 11. The, the Hebrew is tricky, but he says, what is the advantage to their owner? The owner of riches, what is the advantage except to look upon with the eyes? Kind of strange way to word it, but do you hear the nature of his question? The question is, what's the gain in getting rich if you're just going to have to always Watch what you gained be under threat from greedy people. That's his question. Solomon's not saying don't get rich necessarily, don't get successful. He's not saying that. Rather, he's, because that might happen to you. you. You might get rich and that's fine. That happens. But Solomon is saying, look, if you, if you get rich, you're only going to have to stand by and watch other people try to consume what you worked so hard to obtain. That's his warning. He's just being real with us. And that's going to be true, especially if you try to increase your standard of living. Put it this way, if you decide to upgrade and live the good life and get all the luxuries that money can buy, you're going to have to pay the maid to clean the house and the gardener to trim the lawn, the nanny to watch the kids, the pool guy to clean the pool, the chauffeur to drive the car, the accountant to keep the books, the broker to invest the money, the bodyguard to protect your life. Charities are going to fill your mailbox with all sorts of requests for donations. The U.S. government is coming after their mandatory piece of everything you work so hard to attain. Everyone is going to feel like they deserve a cut. And Solomon is just being honest and posing the question that you have to consider in verse 11, what is the advantage of that? What is the gain in becoming wealthy? And the answer is, listen carefully, there is no gain in wealth if you are seeking it as the meaning of life. If you are seeking wealth as an end in itself, Mark my words, although money kisses like a lover, in the end, it bites like a serpent. Why? Because God made the world with certain unalterable laws, one of which is gravity. The other of which, another one of those, is that riches and wealth begin to disappear the second you acquire them, which is exactly what he says in Proverbs 24. 
I think, I think it's in your notes, Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. He says, notice what he says, do not weary yourselves to gain wealth. Don't do that. Don't kill yourself trying to gain money as an end in itself. Cease from your consideration from it. Don't think about that. Why? Because when you set your eyes upon it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Which means, if getting rich and wealthy and you are secretly seeking that as the deepest satisfaction of your soul, mark my words, you will be bitterly disappointed. And not even just bitterly disappointed, but perhaps even eternally destroyed. I mean, you remember what Paul says, right? In 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. These, you know these well, but these are weighty words. Now those who desire to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful lusts which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Why? For the love of money is a root of all the evils. And some by longing for it wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Did you see what is so shocking about that statement is that he says that just even desiring to be wealthy, even just longing to be wealthy, whether, whether you actually become wealthy or not, unleashes something terrifying inside your own soul. It triggers a series of horrifying steps that plunge people into ruin and destruction, which means if you are longing for wealth as an end in itself, you are in more danger than Afghanistan. Are you sure you want to go down that road? Are you sure? But again, understand Solomon's point. It's not, well, don't get wealthy because the government's just going to want their cut. That's not his point. The point is money and wealth were never designed to be the source of your soul's deepest security and satisfaction, ever. They're too fluid, too unstable, too unpredictable, too unreliable, especially in a fallen world, to bank on for any kind of actual security. I mean, this is soap, bubble, practical theology. The second you look to money and wealth to do what they were never intended by God to do, they become futile and even dangerous to your soul. And so ask yourself a question. At a scale of one to four, one being an issue, one, put it this way, one being not an issue, two, seldom being an issue, three, sometimes an issue, and four, often an issue, test yourself. And these questions are in your notes. Number one, I view myself as more important, powerful, and respected when I have more money than others do. Just be honest, scale of one to four. On the flip side, number two, on a scale of one to four, I view other people as more important, more powerful, and respected by me when they have lots of money and wealth. You really respect people who have made it big in the world. Scale of one to four. Number three, 
I feel like I can have access to a more enjoyable and satisfying life when I have more money. And on the flip side, I feel like my life is not as enjoyable or satisfying when I don't have extra money. Scale of one to four. Number four, if I had more money, I feel that I could have more control over my circumstances. In other words, I feel that more money equals more comfort and security. Scale of one to four. Number five, I desire the opportunities for social status and building a platform and gaining privileges and notoriety that money could open up in my life. In other words, I want to be famous. I want people to know me. I want people to talk about me. Number six, I wish, I just wish that I could gratify my needs as they come up in life rather than always having to wait or save or budget or just say no. I wish I could do that. Wouldn't that be nice? Scale of one to four. And number seven, my title, my status, my nice things, or the vacations that I can afford to take give me feelings of superiority over other people who cannot do those things. In other words, I like to impress people with luxuries in my life. Now, don't get me wrong. When I ask you those questions, I'm not assuming that you're a bunch of petty people. That, that's not the implication of this. I just know the human heart all too well because I have one. No one is exempt from this. What's the point? These are the very kinds of things from which Solomon wants to save you. It's never by the lie that a better title or a higher salary, a bigger house, a better body, nicer clothes, more respect and notoriety, that those have the power to reach down deep enough and fill the chasm of the human soul because they don't. They just don't. And what that means is contentment. Contentment and satisfaction in God is the cure to the desires for wealth and money and riches and greed, which is exactly where Solomon goes next in warning number three. Warning number three, don't be surprised. Contentment is way more satisfying. Don't be surprised. Contentment is way more satisfying. And to be totally honest, nobody believes this. Or at least very few people believe that to be content with what you actually have is actually way more satisfying than spending your life trying to obtain what you think will make you happy. And yet we see this very thing in verse 12. And notice how Solomon frames the argument here. This is a very interesting way to put it. He says, the sleep of the working man is sweet, whether he eats a little or whether he eats much. But the abundance of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Did you see the scenario that Solomon's portraying for us? It's, it's really interesting. It sounds kind of weird, but to make a theological statement about contentment, he compares the sleep patterns of two different kinds of people. There's the working man on the one hand and the rich man on the other. And understand, when Solomon talks about the working man, he means a poor, blue-collar, working-class man who works all day at the mill or the shop or the factory, and sometimes he goes to bed with a stomach that's full, sometimes he goes to bed with an empty stomach and a stomach that growls. And we know that because he's compared to the rich man who has everything. And yet, what does Solomon say? How does Solomon describe the sleep of the working man? Sweet is the sleep of the working man, whether he eats a little 
or whether he eats much. This is hard for us to picture, isn't it? Because even some of the poorest in America have plenty to eat, right? Those who work for a living rarely face the struggle of uh, ever going to bed hungry, but this is not uncommon in many parts of the world and throughout history where survival is literally a fight to the death. But what does that mean, though, that the sleep of the working man is sweet? Well, what does that mean? Because that word sweet, that's the very same word used in the Bible to describe what honey is like. Interesting. So we're talking about something that is pleasurable, something that is fulfilling, something that is enjoyable, something that is rewarding and gratifying and appealing, and what is satisfying, rewarding, appealing, and sweet is the sleep of the working man. And again, let me draw this out. You notice, you notice there aren't many details, but you notice he doesn't live paycheck to paycheck. He doesn't even live day to day. He lives meal to meal, literally trusting the Lord for his daily bread. You see it? You see, the point is, the point is, he doesn't have anything that the world says that you need to be happy. No abundance, no affluence, no assets, not even the assurance that he's going to get a full meal at the end of the day. But you notice what he also doesn't have. Anxiety. Envy. Fear. Concern, grumbling, complaining, pointing his finger at God that he's stingy and tight-fisted. No, sweet is the sleep of the working man, whether he eats a little or whether he eats a lot. And the punchline is what this means is that this man is content. Contentment is the issue here. And what does it mean to be content? What would you say? What, what does it mean to be content? except that you love the glory of God? What does it mean to be content, except that we are satisfied with all that God is for us in the Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ? Don't you see, when we become, when God becomes our highest treasure, we break the spell of greed and materialism in our lives. The point is not at all that it's more virtuous to be poor. Or that it's inherently evil to be wealthy. That's not the point at all. The point is, we can be satisfied. We can be content with the bare minimum of survival precisely because we are supremely satisfied in the matchless glory and beauty of God. That's the issue. That's what Solomon, in the entire Bible for that matter, wants to persuade you. The question is, the question is, are you content this morning? Meaning, do you love the glory of God? Are you satisfied with all that God is for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say with Job, Yahweh gives, Yahweh takes away. Either way, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Can we, can we be content with the bare minimum for survival? precisely because we are satisfied by the glory and majesty of the living God. That's the standard. Which means I need to ask you, are you exposing yourself day by day by day to the matchless glory of God found in the pages of Scripture? 
Because you understand that alone has the power to sever the root of coveting and greed. That alone. That alone has the power to do so. To be enamored with this overflowingly lavish, gracious, triune God that singled us out and selected us in eternity past and, and chose us in his son for, and then gave us to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood only when we become enamored with the God who is a giver. Can we sever the root of covening and greed? Because reality is even if we had everything we thought we needed to be happy, it still wouldn't be enough. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what Solomon says at the end of verse 12. Look at the rich man. How does he sleep? Sweet is the sleep of the working man, whether he eats a little or whether he eats much. Here it is. But the abundance of the rich man does not permit him, does not allow him to sleep. Do do you see it? The insomnia of the rich man... Solomon's illustration is his proof that riches in in and of themselves do not reach deep enough to satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. The man is restless. He's troubled. He's disturbed. Precisely because our soul's deepest security can never be found in what we accumulate. And I know we say we know that. But do do we live that? Because you know, don't you? You know how to make the things of this world grow strangely dim, don't you? You know that to cure our lust for treasure, this is very important, to cure our lust for treasure is not to deny our longings for treasure, but instead indulge your desires for treasure in the highest treasure that could possibly exist, namely in God himself. Because you remember there is a thing called treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven that never depletes, that never dwindles. Where thieves don't break in and steal, where moths do not destroy. You see, the problem is not so much that we long for treasure. The problem is that we are willing to settle for such paltry treasures that do not last forever. Which brings us to the fourth warning. To the fourth warning about riches and greed. Number four, don't be silly. Being rich is not what it seems. Originally, I said, don't be stupid, but that seemed a bit sharp. So don't be silly. Being rich is not what it seems. It's not what it seems. And I want you to notice how Solomon develops his final point here. In in verses 13 through 17, what he does, he gives us a couple short little stories, more like vignettes, vignettes about uh, two men who placed all of the eggs of their hope in the basket of wealth, only to be burned and bitterly disappointed in the end, but in two different ways. The first story is in verses 13 through 15. It's really interesting. I won't spend much time on it, but it describes basically a hoarder, a a rich, tight-fisted, Ebenezer Scrooge kind of guy who went bankrupt and lost absolutely everything. That's 13 through 15. Verse 13, look what it says. Literally, it says that he hoarded his riches to his own evil. He was a hoarder and it ruined him. Verse 14, it says that he lost everything. 
maybe by a bad investment, maybe by embezzling money. He got in trouble. But verse 15, Solomon says that what he really forgot is that he would leave this planet with nothing. Look at verse 15. As he came forth from the womb of his mother, naked he shall return, and in his hand he will not carry anything by his labor where he is going. I mean, you see his point, don't you? This, this is really insightful. What cures our greedy propensity to hoard and try to find happiness in what we possess is the reality that we will leave this planet in the same condition in which we arrived. Poor and naked and not a penny to our name. That's helpful. The second vignette, however, describes a wealthy workaholic who made it to the top. This is really powerful to me. This is one of the more moving things I've ever seen. And yet Solomon sort of weaves this brief little story with very few words. But, but so there's this wealthy workaholic who made it to the top, and yet we, what he tasted when he got there was just a crushing disappointment. Look at verses 16 and 17. And even this is a grievous evil. And, uh, exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. And what is the advantage to him who labors for the wind? Here it is. Even all of his days he will eat in the darkness and much provocation and illness and rage. What is he describing here? Who is he describing here? Notice at the end of verse 16, this is a man who labors for the wind. I think that he's describing a man who put his whole life into a, building a career, and yet he never once considered that he would leave the planet in the exact same condition in which he arrived. And Solomon, the master of the rhetorical question, asks one at the end of verse 16. Look what he says. And what is the advantage to him who labors for the wind? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? No. There is no advantage to labor for the wind. In other words, try as you may to control the wind and make, you, make it do what you want it to do. It will only slip through your fingers and leave you with nothing. That's exactly what it's like to try to find your joy, your deepest satisfaction in the accumulation of wealth and possessions. It's just never going to work. But then Solomon drops the hammer in verse 17. This is so powerful to me. Look what he says. Describing this wealthy man who wanted to make it to the top, he says, even all of his days he will eat in the darkness and much provocation and illness and rage. Solomon's point is really insightful here and has been echoed by countless testimonies of people throughout history who tried to make it to the top of the corporate ladder. You see, not only will the one who lives for money leave with nothing, but oftentimes even the very process of acquiring that money is agonizing and brutal. I think what Solomon's doing is just shattering any romanticized notions of what it looks like to become wealthy. It looks glamorous on TV, but in reality it comes with a cost that few are prepared to pay. Notice verse 17. He says that the one who lives to be rich... All of his days he will eat in the darkness. <laughs> what is that? I think Solomon's being very literal here. 
I think he's trying to get us to picture the life of a lonely workaholic, eating by himself at the end of the day because he doesn't have a family, eating late at night after a long, excruciating day at the office. But not only is he alone, Solomon says he eats with much anger or provocation or irritation. In other words, I think this is the frustration and anxiety and stress that comes with trying to build a career and make it big on the stage of the world. But then verse 17, Solomon says that this pursuit of riches and seeking satisfaction is also accompanied by sickness and anger, literally suffering and rage. I think Solomon's describing the literal physical toll that a career can take on somebody's life. That to get rich and be successful oftentimes means you have to abuse your body with late nights and early mornings and high stress and bad food and long hours and little time for rest and all of that is prone to take years off of your life and finally notice the end of verse 17 Solomon says that the one who lives for riches the one who lives to make it to the top eats with rage in other words they are bitter and angry and I know I know that not everyone can be painted with the brush that I'm about to paint and I think Solomon is primarily talking about unbelievers but haven't you noticed again not everyone but haven't you noticed that wealthy people oftentimes are unkind and unpleasant. Solomon even talks about this. In Proverbs 18.23, he says, the rich man answers roughly. In other words, unbelieving wealthy people oftentimes can be really big jerks, and they can be, they can afford to be because it doesn't matter. What is anyone going to do to them? But you see, Solomon, I think, has a profound insight that explains why many wealthy people are so unkind and brutal. It's because being rich and successful wasn't the dream for which they'd hoped. They feel cheated and deceived. When they were an intern in college, they looked at all the skyscrapers and the beautiful buildings and the plush offices and the fitted suits and the fancy cars and the attache cases and the young beautiful receptionist, and it gave them all these romanticized notions of what that world would be. But when they actually got into that world and had piles, an avalanche of responsibility piled onto their shoulders, the reality was nothing like the fantasy. Now, again, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You need a job. A career is a really great thing. You should work as hard as you can. You should be successful for the glory of God. And, and God may even see, to, see fit to make you wealthy. That's fine that happens. And if it happens to you, I will pray for you. But remember, money poses no threat to the soul until it threatens to take God's place as the treasure of the soul. If that's what you're looking for, if that's what you're looking for for your highest happiness, don't be silly. You're about to enter into a world of pain. So, what do you do with that? that that's a lot of interesting stuff. That's, that's a powerful apologetic against money and pursuing money and riches and wealth as an end in itself. The question is, if that's not really what you're after, if you want to love Yahweh, if you want to follow Christ, you want to live your life for his glory and not and, and appropriately be good stewards of God's money, what are you supposed to do with all this? I mean, what, what are the satisfying alternatives to living for money? And free of charge, Solomon gives us three. He gives us three. 
three alternatives to living for money. All these are in your notes. These are going to be surprising applications. You would have never seen these applications coming. Get a load of this. First alternative is this. Number one, rejoice in what you have. Rejoice in what you have. Look at verse 18. Behold, I have seen that it is good, that it is literally beautiful to eat and to drink and to see good in all of one's labor with which one labors under the sun, the number of the days of his life which God gives to him because that is, and I think a better rendering of that is, that is his reward. What does he say? He said a lot there, and there's, there's debate about what this actually means, but I believe it what Solomon's saying. When God is the all-satisfying treasure of your soul and not money, get a load of this, you can and should enjoy life more than anybody else. I think Solomon wants to free us. Because when God himself is your feast, then all of the gifts that he provide are the condiments, the foretastes, the appetizers, the, the glimpses, the, the samples of what it's like to enjoy God himself. Enjoy what you eat. Enjoy what you drink. Enjoy your work. And you can do that because you are not seeking those things as an end in themselves. The second alternative, number two, remember that joy is a gift of God. Joy is a gift of God. Verse 19. And even every man who God gives to him, notice, notice, God gives these things, riches and wealth, and permits him to eat from it and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. Even this is a gift of God. I know your Bible words it perhaps differently than that, but there's a key word in there, permit or allow. And what Solomon said is really shocking because he just said that not only what you have is a gift from God, but even the ability to enjoy what you have is a gift of God. Did you know that? Because many people have, but they do not enjoy. Many people have, but they do not enjoy. And the reason for that is because even the enjoyment of God's gifts is a gift from God himself. So let's put it this way. Did you enjoy your toast this morning? Did you enjoy You didn't? I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> I feel bad for you. Let's, let's, let's pray for her. We'll give her, give her something to eat here. Did, did, did you enjoy your orange juice this morning? Did you enjoy your coffee, your, your warm bed, your drivable car, your comfortable clothes? You see, Solomon's point is those things were a gift. Those things aren't just obvious to you. Those were a gift from God himself. And you see, when you remember that the generosity of God is found in the details, it helps you slow way down and enjoy the life that God intended, namely as humble people who know that every moment of every event is a gift of sovereign grace. I think one of the things that Solomon loves to do in Ecclesiastes is help us to slow down and savor what God has given in the moment. Eat slowly today. Savor every bite, seriously. Number three, the third satisfying alternative, number three, realize that time flies when you're having fun. Time flies when you're having fun. This is, like I said, these, these applications are surprising. He says, for he will not remember much, speaking about a man who loves God, he will not remember much the days of his life. Why? For God keeps him busy in the joy of his heart. 
It's interesting. Have you ever met those people that all they do is complain, grumble about that they've been hurt, they've been wounded, they've been betrayed? They grumble about their health. They grumble about their disappointments and all the drama in their life. I mean, do you know who I'm talking about? All they do, all they have is bad news. Are are, are you one of those people? Because Solomon is talking about the opposite of that person. Because you understand that the person who loves Yahweh with all of his heart still experiences all of those things. They have pain. They have difficulty. They have surprising inconveniences. They have great disappointment in their lives. They have frustrations and difficulties like everybody else. But you see, the devastating difference between those two people, look what Solomon says, is that the one who loves Yahweh doesn't remember much the days of his life. Meaning what? That he got dementia? No. It means that delighting in God, it's very important, that delighting in God frees them from being defined by the disappointments of the past. In other words, when God truly is at the supreme, satisfying center of your life, sure, you have your share of disappointments, but when God is your deepest delight, you neither dwell on those disappointments, nor are you defined by those disappointments. Why? Look at the end of verse 20. For God keeps him busy in the joy of his heart. There it is. Time flies when you're having fun. I think God intended this life to be enjoyed, even in a fallen world, even surrounded by pain. Why? Because God himself is the foundation of it all. So the secret, the secret to not being some bitter, cantankerous person who always feels cheated in life, always complaining that you have an unjust hand dealt to you, is to find your deepest joy not in your circumstances, but in the God who brought the circumstances. And a supreme joy and a sovereign God who satisfies the soul, exposes the pursuit of riches and wealth and greed to be exactly what they are, worthless. Thank you, Solomon. Good lessons. Good warnings. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is a strange text in many ways not one that we would choose as our favorite passage, perhaps, Lord, and yet, and yet it is, Lord, it seems like one that we should know well, that we should think of often, one that is filled with really practical warnings for us, and I pray, oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to to see the, uh, the things of this world as strangely dim in light of who you are. I pray that we would balance that by enjoying the, the things that you have provided, not as ends in themselves, but as means to enjoying more of who you are. Oh, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would help us. Help us to, to watch carefully over the springs of our own heart that we do not begin to desire to become wealthy. Oh, Lord, guard us, guard us, help us to find our deepest joy and contentment and satisfaction in you. Lord, we need things to survive, and you know, Father, that we need them. Help us to be freed and liberated to seek first your kingdom because you have already chosen to give us the kingdom. It is ours, and that frees us. Thank you for that. And we look forward to how you will use words on this subject in the future. 
to change and transform our lives. And in your son's mighty name we pray.